Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. And welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. Uh, we're back. Thank you to Peter Devlin for last week. I get the feeling uh, if I hadn't had to wrap it up, I'd still be talking to Peter. Nice lad, very nice lad, and uh, nice to see someone with a bit of personality. I hope he does uh, Hope he does well. We'll see him very shortly in the shootout. This episode is called Puffery and Lies. That's Puffery and Lies. It's not... It's not an old uh, sitcom from the 1980s starring Richard Bryars. It is... Uh, the, well, I got the phrase from... I was watching... Um, the inauguration coverage on uh, CNN, Joe Biden, and uh, they they showed um, Donald Trump's last speech as president. It was a bizarre, um, hard to believe, I know, but a bizarre uh, occasion. He was at the airbase and there were sort of 30 lunatics sort of cheering every word. Um, and he did this speech where he just basically said how great he'd been and how well he'd done and, and so on and so on. Um, and then left to YMCA. <laughs> I still don't quite understand. Still don't quite understand. Anyway, they went back to the CNN's. I can't remember who it was, but it was one of their anchors. And he said, "There we are. That's the last time we'll hear from Donald Trump as president. No more of his puffery and lies." And I thought, "Oh, that's a good phrase. I'll, yeah. I'll, be, having, I'll be having that." So the reason it's called this episode is called that is because later on we're going to be just looking at a few sort of myths that have grown up over the over the years. Quite a few of them we've started ourselves, I'm sure, but some some others as well that actually, when they're looked at, maybe are not maybe are not uh, true. So we're, we're going to some of the sort of myth, great myths of snooker folklore. Uh, we're speaking to you, or we're recording this anyway, on Walter Donaldson's birthday. And that's something to say. Uh, well, I mean, that's all anyone's talking about on the yeah. Twitter sphere today. I believe. Yeah, 1907. Yeah. Uh, 1907. Okay. Yeah. Right. When when did he die? He died about early eighties, was it? Something no, in like the se- in the seventies. I mean, oh, Walter, right. Don- Walter Donaldson. For those who don't know, he was the first uh, person to win the world title, other than Joe Davis. Uh, he won it twice, beat Fred Davis. In those days, you know, it was sort of best of 140, 40 odd. Um, they played all the dead all the dead frames. In fact, Clive uh, unearthed an extraordinary stat about some of those world finals. Not only did they play the dead frames, that they actually potted every ball of every frame. Wow. So a bit like Ronnie was doing recently, you know, just yeah. Playing, I mean, literally, you know, just really wringing it dry of any of anything. Um, but wasn't, push, yeah. wasn't Walter Donaldson some player of that era who, when he finally decided to stop yeah. playing and just didn't even want to practice anymore, was it Walter Donaldson? Someone did. They smashed up the table and used the slates. Their practice table. Um, they, they smashed it up and they took the slates and used them to pave their uh, their driveway. That's I exactly what he did. Oh, it's exactly yeah. what he did because, of course, the, the problem was in the in the. And we'll get on to the, the, the sort of the current topic shortly. But mm. the problem was in in those days. Obviously, Joe Davis retired from the World Championship, but he still 
played other events and he played exhibitions and he was by far the biggest name in the sport. And so you had the World Championship completely devalued. The best player wasn't in it. And there was no TV coverage really or anything like that. So the game just went into complete, you know, dissolute. I mean, it just it completely dissolved into nothing. And he became frustrated. There were no opportunities. And in, you're quite right. In the end, he smashed up his table, used it to uh, pave a path in his garden. But he was the first Scottish world champion before Stephen Hendry. Um, and we dedicate this podcast <laughs> this, this week to Walter Donaldson. Wow. I'm, sure, I'm sure he'd be delighted. He you, if, if he was alive, he'd smash his table up again, I think. Anyway. He'd, probably, he'd probably smash his computer up once he'd heard what we'd said about him. <laughs> Do you reckon there's ever been another podcast ever dedicated to Walter Donaldson in the entire history of the internet? Well, it's, I don't know, but I'll tell, tell you who's got... Again, we will get to the, the big issue shortly. I, David Dimbleby's got a podcast, which I was amazed by. I thought he would thumb his nose at all that stuff. Oh. Um, but that shows you that uh, podcasting is... He's doing a podcast about the Iraq war. Um, which is very, very, very interesting. Anyway, we're not here to talk about David Dimbleby. Um, what we are here to talk about, as I say, we'll get to the main topic later on, um, the, the myths that have grown up in the snooker world. We're going to talk about the German Masters shortly. First, firstly, though, uh, big news today, a new sponsor, uh, Kazoo, uh, car salespeople, uh, online salespeople. Um, they're a big deal, actually, a big company. They're going to be sponsoring the ITV series of events, so uh, World Grand Prix, from next season, uh, the Players' <coughs> play Championship and the Tour Championship. Uh, great little series, that, and uh, great to have not only a new sponsor in the time of a pandemic, but, of course, they're not a gambling firm. Um, mm-hmm. That's, you know, I think Snooker kind of, a lot of people felt were going down the tobacco route, and a lot of people feel that that will come to an end through legislation. But that's good, and maybe that will be the start of, you know, if they're coming in, other, other companies potentially will follow. But But all credit to Barry and the team for getting them. Yeah, absolutely. A huge company. I mean, they sponsor two different Premier League teams. I mean, you know, that shows you what a big organisation we're talking about here. It'll lend itself to all sorts of Tom Ford jokes when the tournaments themselves come around, if he's in them. And here's a trivia question for you that I'm not sure I know the answer to, but I think I do. <laughs> you see, you don't, you, don't get this, you don't get this with David Dimbleby's podcast. No, indeed. <laughs> he, uh, so, well, we could call this our sort of question time. It's our tribute to David Dimbleby's uh, uh, efforts. Um, so, what was the last tournament to be sponsored by well, a car company? Well, I remember the Skoda Grand Prix, of course. Ah, um, yeah, actually, that's right. So my answer was wrong. What was your answer? I, I, yeah, well, I thought, yeah, it's completely... It, it oh, was Skoda. No, God, I'd forgotten about that one. In between the two, uh, the British car rental World Cup in <laughs> 1990. That was the tournament where Alex threatened to have Dennis shot. And, um... <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, well, so other ones as well. There must have been someone else along the way. Like Skoda definitely would be the last one because they were s- still sponsoring the Grand Prix in '95. Laddie have mentioned as well. British car rental. There must have been another one along the way. Well, they didn't sponsor the event, but of course the Kilkenny Masters only held one. Oh they, yeah. They, they put up a they put up a car as the prize for a maximum, and then they decided that for some reason that wasn't going to be the prize, but they left mm. it parked outside mm. the venue. And of course Ronnie O'Sullivan made a maximum, and yeah. quite understa- quite understandably. Went in the tournament office and said, you know, kind of rubbing his hands together, where are the keys? Oh, sorry, yeah, we, we withdrew that. Well, no, well, not... actually, slight correction. Yeah. A slight correction to that story. I mean, that's broadly true. Um, <laughs> we're on to the myths already, <laughs> because that isn't exactly what happened. You were there, Dave. I mean, you should remember yeah. this. Um, he went to the tournament office, or at least I think he walked past it, but I do know for a fact nobody was in the tournament office because they'd all scarpered, because they knew what was coming. <laughs> and the thing was, he had made the 147 in the final frame. Uh, I think he was playing Joe Swell. And there was an unbelievable reaction. The clip is on YouTube. It's fantastic stuff. 
go and look. You've never seen a snooker crowd like it. He comes in, all delighted with himself, he's won a car. So, of course, I was the press officer, so I had the pleasure, as the only remotely official person on the premises by that stage, of informing him, well, actually, Ronnie, afraid to say there isn't a car, despite the one outside. It was a whole new twist on the whole bullseye, here's what you could have won. Mm. You know, and then they show you the prize. In this case, it was, well, here's what you did win, and we're going to show you the prize, but you're still not getting it. So, uh, yeah, I know there's definitely been another car sponsor. It'll probably hit me in about 10 minutes and I'll okay, suddenly well. shout it out. So we'll come back to that. So great news to have Kazoo on board for all those tournaments and, you know, a huge company, as you say. Hopefully it is the start of, uh, of things to come on that front. You're mentioning Alex Higgins there. I was just watching this morning um, it, on YouTube. Someone's got the original BBC coverage of his 982 uh, victory. And wow. I was quite, I'm always interested to see how they, you know, how it, we, we, we all remember, we've seen the footage of him beckoning his baby and all the rest of it and his wife. Um, but how did the BBC, what did, was there an interview and whatever, how did it work? So basically what happens is the final finishes, Ted Lowe wraps it up and then David Vine from the studio sort of just narrates the presentation, um, and obviously reacts to what he's watching. But then very quickly they're off the air. I mean, the, the, the credits are rolling. Mm. There's no, there's no, there's no interview. I, I think the first interview, and we will get to the, the big issues of the day shortly. But I think the, the, the first interview in the arena after World Final wasn't until the Black Ball Final in 85. Because I've seen the 84 post-final, and that was in the studio. I remember that because they had sandwiches. <laughs> um, oh, so all I, right. I think, I, unless it, I mean, yeah. No, no, because uh, 81. Myth, you see. Yeah, myth, it's, it's we don't need to even get to yeah. the ones we've written down. Um, 81, uh, definitely when Steve won it, if you remember. David Vine does come out into the arena right. holding holding a microphone. So definitely that one. I don't know about any other years, but, but I certainly why that they one. Yeah, I wonder why they stopped that. Anyway, um, let's let's move on. Uh, the, the shootout, of course, is back this week. And Scott Fife has emailed. This is uh, uh, a lot of people have been asking this question, actually. Scott says, how do you see the lack of any crowd this time impacting the shootout? Will it lead to the potential for different players contending? Does it diminish the event given the role of the crowd played? Well, I think anyone can win it anyway. I, I mean, I, mm. I think I think just because of the nature of the rules. Here's the thing, okay? There's going to be crowd noise. I can I can reveal this. There's going to be crowd noise. It's recorded from previous shootouts. It's going to be mainly for the TV audience. The players will hear it only faintly. It won't be as loud in the arena as it is hearing uh, listening to it on TV. It's it's quite hard actually because I mean there were very generic sort of chants in that shootout. Like the yellow has its own chant. We're yeah. going back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago here, with like the pink has the Pink Panther theme tune, all that stuff. Uh, and of course, different players have their own, like Robbie Williams gets all the Robbie Williams stuff and so on and so on. Um, but it's going to be generic. It's just to try and create a bit of buzz because I must admit, I did think this might be one event that, that wouldn't happen purely because it is so associated uh, with the crowd. But um, no, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it diminishes the event. We've seen, um, you know, so many tournaments, like the Masters, I was convinced, you know, was going to be not that great this year because it's always been associated with a big crowd. Once the snooker starts, as we've seen, we saw it again last week, you just get into the snooker. I know not everyone likes the shootout. One thing I will say is I've been to the last couple for Eurosport and every night where I've left the venue, it's been in Watford, every night I've left the venue, people have had smiles on their faces, which is a good thing. It might not be for everyone, but the people who go to it love it. Uh, it's a good day out. You don't have to sit quietly. You can just enjoy yourself. So I think it will miss the crowd, but I think the actual when when those shootout frames are close and exciting, they're great to watch. They're not all like that. Some of them peter out quite quickly. In fact, the final did really last year. Holty won it really easily. Um, but I think still think it has the potential to be exciting. 
you can't paper over the fact there's not a crowd, but they're going to do. They, I guess they're going to do their best. I'm just disappointed Stephen Hendry didn't enter it because, as you say, anyone can win, really. So he could have turned up, won it, and reclaimed a share of the record <laughs> number of yeah. ranking titles won. Fantastic stuff it would have been. But yeah, look, it's it's a chance for something. I mean, it had a huge impact last year because, as a result of the shootout going into that. Ronnie O'Sullivan was in the 16 for the Players' Championship, which, of course, he would have been defending champion in. But because of the results of the shootout, he ended up missing out on it. Uh, so, And Michael Holt obviously got into play in the Players' Championship. And I think he played Judd, didn't he, in his first match and yeah. gave him a decent enough contest. So, look, reality is, you know, whether you think it should be a ranking event or not, it can have a very big impact now, particularly now that the first prize has gone up to £50,000. You know, it can really uh, have a huge impact on your season. So... We will see how it unfolds. I saw Holty, um because it was in Southport, the Players' Championship, and yeah. essentially, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was, pretty, maybe not the next day, probably was the Tuesday, he was sat at breakfast, and of course that was the first people had seen him since he won, and all the other players, like John Higgins, these people were coming over to him, congratulating him, and he was like sort of some sort of monarch sat there, like receiving mm. receiving guests, as Stephen Fry would say, like a pig in Chardonnay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that's uh, that's the shootout. Now, the German Masters, of course, uh, was just uh, staged. Uh, we could maybe just play a recording of podcasts from the last yeah. couple of years, congratulating Judd Trump again. Um, it was a strange old week for him. He started it not in great fashion, I thought. He made some pretty foolish comments um, about his COVID test. Um, essentially saying he told the press that um, he reckoned he hadn't had the virus. It was a it was a false positive. He should have been allowed to play in the Masters. Here's the thing about that: he's not qualified to say that. Um, he, firstly, we were told initially he didn't have any symptoms. He actually said he did have some. He felt he had like a cold. He had a cold. All World Snooker can do is use this this private health company and rely on their results. It's not to say there's, there's no false positives in any of the tests, but they can't know that. They can't make a special case for him. He might have felt fine. The point is, and this is why, and I had it as well, this is why you have to isolate, you can pass it on to someone who wouldn't be fine, particularly someone in a vulnerable age category or someone who's got underlying health issues. So, of course, he didn't want to miss the Masters. Of course, he was um, disappointed by that. But I thought his comments were rather strange and and showed a a bit of an ignorance about how it all works. Well, astonishing to hear someone called Trump making (laughs) ill-informed comments about COVID, you know. But anyway, there we go. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't actually heard that there wasn't. I knew he'd said something. That was the first time what you have just said there that I've heard it in detail. But look, yeah, yeah. If you didn't have these, if you weren't doing these tests and you know abiding by the outcome, these tournaments wouldn't be happening. So yeah, end of story, really. Well, he made up for it. I mean, of course, the two players who had to pull out the Masters got to the final. Yeah, uh, Judd Trump and Jack Lazowski. Uh, I think objectively over the week again, Trump wasn't at his dazzling best all the time, but. When it looked like, and it did look like he was going to lose in the semi-finals to Barry Hawkins, I mean, it really did. He turned it on in spectacular fashion. And when we got to the final, I think with these two, they both, both Judd and Jack have got, you know, great A games. Trump's got a much better B game. And that came to the fore. He won the close friends in the final. And he kind of, I, I actually thought the Zouch had a great chance. I thought he's, in some ways, it was his best chance to win the tournament just because he was so confident. But mm. he's come, but he's come up against a winning machine, and Trump knows how to win now. And you know, again, very, very impressive to keep on this kind of week in, week out dedication he's got and determination of the sort that Davis and Hendry had to just turn up whatever the tournament is and win it. And it must be getting in Lazowski's head now. I meant to ask you this the other day, actually, and I'm pretty sure the answer is no. Has any other player ever lost his first five ranking finals? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's been yeah. a few. There's been a few who've lost four. Ryan yes. Day, 
Yeah. Fine day, obviously Gilbert at the moment. Uh, Graham mm. Dot actually was another one. But um, yeah. oh, five is, no, no, I don't think so, no. You look at Dot, I mean, the players he met in those finals, it was all Higgins, Henry O'Sullivan, players like that. And it's been much the same with Lazowski, actually, because he's played, played Robertson twice, I think, um, in finals. Correct me if I'm wrong. So, yeah. Sorry, Trump twice. Trump twice. And Robertson, yeah. And, and Selby's Trump, the other one. And yeah. played Selby, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it's obviously coming up against the very best players in the world. You look at Dot, uh, when he then wasn't facing one of the all-time greats in a final, he was playing Peter Ebden, very good player, obviously, but not at the same level as Higgins, O'Sullivan and Hendry. He did win. And, of course, that was the world championship. So I think that's what Lazowski needs. He needs to get to a final and maybe not play someone of quite that level. Uh, that could be the turning point for him. People say a lot of things like, uh, oh, you know, if he keeps knocking on the door long enough, well, it's bound to open eventually. Well, it isn't. I mean, you know, you, you could apply that to Jimmy White, for example, in the World Championship is the most obvious example. You can knock on the door forever and it might not open. And the other thing people say is, well, you know, once he's won one, the floodgates will open. They probably won't, actually. I, I don't know if he's of that level that the floodgates will open. But what I do think is it is becoming, a, you know, a, a much, much bigger psychological barrier now with every final that comes and goes without him winning. I do think if he wins one, you've got to remember, Lazowski is still one of the youngest players in the top 16. Um, you know, most of the other leading players are much older than him. So you do feel if he could get one under his belt, he'd probably win a few more somewhere along the way. But uh, it'd be great to see him do it because he's great to watch and such a nice lad as well, as we always say. But feels like we were saying all those things a few weeks ago, weren't we? He's very relaxed, laid back, Jack. I, do, I can't remember whether I've told this story before, but at the shootout, as you go back to that last year, he came in and did a frame of commentary with me because he'd won his match and we oh yeah get the players in. And, and he's quite relaxed about how it all worked because at the end, like as the, as the whatever frame we were doing coming to a climax, I sort of you know said good luck to you, Jack, in, in the in the next round. There's still a sort of minute and a half of the match to go, and he took that as his cue to leave. So he, he literally, you know, people talk about dropping the mic. He literally dropped the mic. He just, he just dropped it on, on the desk, slapped me on the back, said, thanks, man, and left. <laughs> so how, well, can you not, how can you not like the guy? He's, he's no, absolutely. Yeah. He's just one, one of the most, uh, you know, any listeners who've never met him, he is uh, honestly one of the most likable, genuine people you could ever meet. That story actually reminds me of, um, I, as you know, I've, I've mentioned it on the podcast before, I used to present live Premier League football on the radio, and, uh, early on, it was actually just before I'd started uh, presenting it, the, pre- the original presenter was still there. And the feature match one day, uh, the live game we were doing was Manchester United and Aston Villa. Now, if you're covering United against Villa on an Irish radio station, mm. you obviously get Paul McGrath yes. to come and do the co-commentary. And uh, Tom Tyrrell, who um, you know, I think is quite well known over in England, certainly in the Northwest region, but he was our main commentator at the time. And about five minutes before half time, Paul McGrath stands up. And someone's taking him by the hand. And then Tom basically knows you can't have your co-commentator leaving five minutes before half time. So he tries to pull him back down into his seat. (laughs) And eventually it emerged that uh, Paul, being, again, you know, really, really obliging sort of guy, had uh, had agreed to conduct the halftime raffle and had also (laughs) agreed that he would go down five minutes before half time. I just genuinely don't think it had occurred to him that he was still going to be on air. So similar story. So. Jack's not in bad company there with uh, someone who was uh, once one of the best footballers in the world. And Jack himself is one of the best snooker players in the world and showing, you know, real consistency now over the last while. And like I say, it would be great to see him win something soon. And you would think on balance, like I say, no guarantees, but, uh, you know, considering as well as age, the likelihood is something will, will fall for him eventually. Let's hope so. But of course, it's uh, it's the era of Trump um, and inevitably um, discussion turned to 
you know, where he sort of stands in, in the pantheon. It's maybe a bit early to say that because he's still, you know, we still don't know what he's going to achieve. My view on it all is, I think to be considered an all-time great in snooker, you have to win multiple world titles, but you also have to win lots of other tournaments. The World Championship is the one pinnacle event. It's, the, it's a tournament way out ahead of everything else. But if you just won six world titles and nothing else, that wouldn't put you on a level with Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry because they and, and Ronnie and, and Selby and Higgins and Williams and these people who not only won the major titles, but they won all the other things as well. That's another sign of greatness, actually, being able to turn up week in, week out and win events. Now, Trump is doing that. So that's half of it done. What he's got to do now, I guess, is try and win more world championships. Personally, I think he will. We'll see over the next few years. Um, well, and then he said, and then he, go on. on. Yeah. No, you know, carry on. Well, well, I was just going to say, think back on this, right? We did about, I don't know, four or five months ago, something like that. We did our top 10 players of mm. all time. Now, we both picked the same 10 players. We just had them in a slightly different order. Mm. If Judd Trump had done nothing prior to November 2018, would he have done enough since then to be in the all-time top 10? I, I think he'd be in contention, purely on the basis of what he's done in that period of time. Because what is it now? Is it 13 ranking titles plus yeah. the Masters in two years, two months and two weeks, actually? Yeah. Is, is the period of time he's done that in. So he, he might have done enough even in that period of time to put himself in the all-time top ten. I was actually thinking about this the other day. The all-time list. I think everyone agrees O'Sullivan and Hendry are first and second. Most people put O'Sullivan first, but I think everyone would have them as the top two. And then I think everyone would have John Higgins as number three on the all-time list. I'm going to predict that by the end of this decade, Trump will be pretty much universally regarded as at least in the all-time top four and very possibly overtake John Higgins to be okay. uh, number three on the all-time list. I just don't see how that won't happen. The only way it wouldn't happen, I think, well, there's two possible things which are quite similar to each other. One is that he will lose the hunger uh, for more success. But it seems to me at the moment the more success he gets, the more hungry he gets for more of it. It's a bit like Stephen Hendry was, was, was very similar to it. And the other possibility, of course, you've got to say for a man of his age, what happens if he has a family? And then obviously his whole life changes and can he put in the same dedication? But even then, I mean, we've seen people who've been in that position and it hasn't affected them at all. So we'll see. But it just seems to be on such a positive, relentless trajectory in his career at the moment that it's just very hard to see how he won't go on to keep, keep going in, in this way right through, as I say, to the end of the decade. Well, well, he played some great shots along the way, and James Corbett has, has emailed about this. He said, during the recent German Masters, social media went crazy with replays of the two amazing shots played by Judd Trump. The black with check side, dislodged the, the red off the cushion, and the green to hold for Brown. Although they were fantastic shots, I can't help but think of the silly things Alex and Jimmy used to do with the cue ball back in the 80s. The conditions nowadays are obviously far ahead of what they had back then, so I can only imagine the action Judd gets on the cue ball is helped by much more active cloth. Looking back through some footage from the 80s, it just shows how talented Alex and Jimmy were with what they could do on thicker, heavier cloths. It's nice to see Judd bringing some flair back to the game. James actually then also said footage of him trying to rec recreate these shots. Um, wow. Yeah, I, you're absolutely, I don't disagree with any of that, James. What I would say is, of course, what they didn't have was social media. In those days, if Jimmy White or Alex Higgins played an exhibition shot, if you weren't watching at the time, it kind of disappeared into the ether, unless it was re-shown at a later date. Now... Uh, something and this is a good thing I think for snooker is something like that you know does go viral in the be in the best sense of the word um, yes. and, and and it creates huge attention I mean the shot I mean I commentated on the on the the, the black to the red and I, both myself and Neil were sort of looking at it thinking he's, he's actually got it if he wants because he was on for a century 
if he wants to get on this red, he's got to pull something special out, and he did. The green was, that was a kind of shot that Jimmy used to play, definitely, or used to try and play. But ludicrous, really. I mean, just the amount of top spin he had on it to stop the cue ball. But brilliant as well. That, those sort of things get people talking. And I think he regards a lot of shots like that as quite routine. I mean, you think back to Jimmy in his prime, and he played some wonderful shots, but he tended to do it if he was playing well and feeling very confident in himself. Judd would would be eyeing up a shot now. He'd see a shot like that, and he'd think, well, that's the obvious shot to play. He wouldn't see it as being outrageous. The other thing as well is I think he has more of a tendency to play these outrageous shots in a live situation. Now, I'm not saying Jimmy and Alex never did, but a lot of the great shots Jimmy used to play were when frames were well and truly won. Judd will play them at a key moment in the frame. And he's been like that for 10 years, and that's, that's a very big difference. But I do think the point about the cloths being different now, and that favouring Judd, and the fact that it, it was harder to play shots like that, you know, back in the era of Jimmy and Alex, I, I think there's absolutely no question about that. That's definitely true. Yeah, OK. One final thing I want to say about the German Masters. I want to say congrats to Phil Seymour, who uh, is the MC, very good MC, but also he did the interviews at the end of the final. They're not easy to do those, because you're always going to be dealing with someone who's lost. And in the case of Jack... They've lost 9-2. The runner-up usually wants to get out of there. We've seen a few of those interviews that have not been great over the years from, you know, professional broadcasters. I mean, there used to be a standing joke at one of the tournaments that they were going to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know which one I mean, it was going yes. to be bad. Going to be bad. Um, he did a good job and, and um, you know, got, got good stuff out of them. Trump spoke very well about Brandon Parker, of course, the trophy was named after. Um, and I, I always think that's important, actually, uh, at the end that you leave with that sort of um, feeling that, yeah, you've, you've not only watched a good snooker match, but actually the, the people playing it, you can kind of relate to. And they both spoke well. It's hard for the runner-up, but Jack spoke well. Judd spoke well. It was a nice way to end, and mm. Phil, Phil played his part in that, I think. So we'll see more of that sort of thing in the future, perhaps. <laughs> there we are. Let's, yeah. hope, let's hope we won't hear more of that sort of thing. Mm. Now mm. then, uh, two weeks ago, I made some extraordinary controversial comments about the brown ball. I think I called it a troublemaker. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I won't lie, there's been a backlash um, from from supporters of the brown That's ball. That's why you did it. I think you wanted yeah. to provoke a backlash. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, um, well, we have done. David Burney in Canada, um, who, who was, whose email we'll return to, is, raises some other interesting points, but... This is what David said, okay? And I can take this, David. I don't mind, you know, we're, we've all, it's a passionate subject, obviously, the, the colours of the balls. He says, those are some tough words being said about the brown. Taking on a shot to nothing from bulk and being successful in potting a red, the brown is a great colour to roll up to. If the brown was disturbed a little and moved closer to yellow or green, it sets up a great wall to, to be behind to lay snookers. Also, a big shot always in clearances is brown to blue. If that went wrong, you could be in trouble, lose the frame, or lose that high break you were, you were running. So go easy on the brown. And then he says, did I mention my mother's maiden name was brown? Maybe I have a little bias. Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay. Paul Prescott. Now, I also mentioned Wayne Brown, the toad, former, oh, profe- yeah. former professional. And this email just ties everything up in a really nice way. So Paul Prescott, this is, he said, your reference to former pro Wayne Brown in the context of altering the colours of the balls reminded me of the one and only time I played him. For a few years in the 1980s, even David Dimbleby can't get this sort of content, Mm. said, for a few years in the 1980s, I played in a team snooker summer league. Up to that point, we we had always played during the autumn and winter and never played competitions during the warmer months. Wayne had played in our local leagues in the St. Helens area for many years, but I'd never played him until the summer league. He had to give me a very big start as he was so much better than me, but I managed to win. I remember feeling a bit guilty about beating him as he cleared up all the colours at the end and the way he moved the ball around the table his next position was superb. I only won due to the start he had to give me. But 
the reason why it suddenly came into my head was the fact we were playing Snooker Plus, with orange, 8 points, between pink and blue, and purple, 10 points, between blue and brown. We had decided to play the Summer League as a Snooker Plus competition just for something different. I vaguely remember how much more difficult it made the game, as having more balls on the table, they tended to get in the way of each other. So, of course, we were talking last, last time about uh, Snooker Plus and, um, mm. and, and, and the, you know, how the balls... Uh, how the colours of the balls came about, and uh, that kind of, and Wayne Brown came into it as well. So that has sort of brought all the subjects together. Yeah, uh, Wayne Brown, I think it was the Grand Prix he did well in uh, back in '94. I think he maybe even got to the quarterfinals, or certainly at least the last 16 of it. And Joe Swale beat him. I remember Clive actually compared him to Darren Goff, the cricketer, in his style. Now you might think, how can you compare the style of a cricketer to the t- style of a snooker player? But now I don't know a great deal about cricket, but I do know about Darren Goff, and I actually thought it was uh, well, quite a good comparison. Well, there's a guy who emailed me um, about uh, Jack Lazowski comparing him to David Gower. Um, oh, wow. Was a very kind of easy-on-the-eye England batsman, very talented, but also he was known for now and again getting out a bit cheaply. Um, right. So, anyway, uh, James Cook on this subject, he said, really, can, could, well, can, can yeah. we just go back to the Snooker Plus for a minute? The, the thing, this is the thing that, and um, we mentioned it, that, you know, always arises. Where do people get an orange and a purple ball if well, they want to play Snooker Plus? Did, I mean, where, did, yeah. Didn't we establish there was a purple ball shop or something? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, well, a mythical one. I yeah. definitely remember many, many years ago playing on a snooker table that for some random reason did have an orange ball. Well, we weren't playing Snooker Plus. I'd love to know what the story... I was in Northern Ireland at the time, actually, now that I think of it, when I was playing. So maybe it was something to do with the whole unionist uh, persuasion or whatever. So there are orange balls out there, and clearly from that story, purple ones as well. Wow. Okay. James Cook, he said, really... By the way, thanks for... I had a lot of people... uh, Because you mentioned we should have a theme tune, or somebody did. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think it was you, but anyway. um, And a lot of people suggested um, various... Things. In fact, Dave Tyndall sent me a playlist. Um, but uh, <laughs> but um, so thank you for those. Anyway, James said, uh, the, read the discussion about the colour order of the snooker balls. How about the colour of the bays? Why is it green? Could we have different colours for different events? Has Barry Hearn thought of selling the table space to a sponsor so they can put a logo on the bays or a massive crown in the centre of the table just for the triple crown events? Oh, what, I say, what I would yeah, exactly what I would say about that, James, is do not give them any ideas. I don't know why the I don't know why it's green bays. I mean, I suppose that's is that not the natural colour of bays? I don't know. I well, don't I can know. I, I, I can I can provide a lot of I can shed a lot of light on this. Mm. I think the reason it's green is because it's um, billiards was originally meant to resemble croquet, and obviously ah. croquet is played on grass. So that's as far as I know. The other thing is it there's has footage, been yeah. there's footage of Clive online demonstrating this by playing croquet. If you can find that on YouTube, that's worth wow. seeing. I'm going to go off and do it now. Forget the rest of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, I have seen snooker on television with a blue cloth. Okay. Many years ago on a Super Channel. Which you I sure think this, this wasn't just your TV was on the blink, no? Oh, well, actually, yeah. Well, no, the, of course, we've discussed in the past mm. the ITV glow. So. Yeah. No, this definitely happened. It was around about the late 80s, early 90s. There was an extraordinary period where, like, Barry Hearn at that time was promoting a lot of unusual sort of events. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. There were just different formats and things like that. And a lot of them, uh, for some reason, ended up being played in Monte Carlo. And certainly, I remember some of them being played with a blue cloth on the table. And this was the kind of random stuff that used to show up on Super Channel, as it was at the time. So, uh, in fact, Clive may well have been doing the commentary on it. So it has been done in the past. 
Okay. Um, well, if there's any footage of that out there, then then let us know. Yeah. Um, Richard Westcott, the BBC science correspondent. Oh yeah. He said he did write to us about the break off. He said thanks for your thoughts on the break off shot. I know Michael said we shouldn't mess with snooker, so here's my plan to mess with snooker. <laughs> okay, make the black worth eight points or even nine. It would encourage players to take bigger risks to get in onto the black rather than settle for pink or blue. Sometimes change is good. Cricket's had everything from four to eight ball overs. Didn't rugby penalties used to be worth only two points? Getting rid of the back-passing football was great. Dave, I think you're being harsh on the brown, by the way. It's the first colour that, that's really worth anything, especially for us amateurs who only expect to get a red and one colour per visit if we're lucky. The yellow looks pretty, but is a complete waste of space, like a few expensive footballs I can think of. He says also, he says, I know everyone says it in their emails, but, thank, but keep up the good podcast, podcast work. I'm filming a lot of COVID stuff in hospitals at the moment. It's welcome escapism. I can't tell you how hard those medical staff work. 12-hour shifts in horrible masks. You see, this is why snooker players need to be careful what they say about this, mm. this topic, because yeah. there, there are people, and Olivia Martil is one of them, the referee, on the front, yeah. line, of, on the front line of this every day. He also said, uh, he said, up until now, my dad was the only person I knew that liked snooker, and he can't watch half the games because he gets annoyed if the person he likes starts losing. I barely saw Alex Higgins when I was a kid because my dad couldn't stand him and had to turn over if he started winning. Well, all I can say about that, Richard, is seek out that YouTube footage of uh, of the final. I mean, I mean, changing the the, the value of the the colours, I do not agree with, um, because you know it, it completely, it's a completely different game. Then there's no more one four sevens for a start. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm I, I'm not I'm not I don't agree with that. I'm afraid. I'm I'm going to guess that the likelihood of someone listening to this podcast and uh, taking it and running with it and the game changing in that way is is is, is pretty unlikely. So it's um, I don't think it's. Uh, it's likely to come to anything much. But, why, I mean, why would you do that? I mean, why, why tamper with the game? You know, we had a lot of this back in the days of bad administrations. It was just pointless changes. And You know, p- people talk about things that have been tried in other sports. I mean, the back pass rule, I mean, that was, that was because there was a big problem in the game and the game needed to be improved. Um, if anything, the players in, in snooker need to be held back because the standards are almost getting out of hand. So, no, I don't see any. Uh, I don't see any reason to change anything actually about the game itself and the way it's played on the table in the slightest. Okay, uh, we're going to move on. We've had a lot of other emails. I think what my intention is, and maybe next time we'll go through some of the ones that are built up. Uh, they're all. I don't delete them. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, if you haven't, if yours hasn't been read out, then it's nothing personal. We'll, we'll try and get through them at another point. Before we move on to the to the uh, puffery and lies section of this podcast. There, I, there is another snooker in popular culture thing that I came across by chance. I was what There's a channel in Britain, Talking Pictures TV. It's called, oh, yeah. It's not out of someone's shed, isn't it? Well, I don't know about shed. I think I heard it was a house in Watford. Anyway, um, yeah. it's a free channel, and they show some extraordinary films you just do not see on any other, on any other channel, partly because um, they're not really of the sort of quality. I mean, they, they literally look like they're being played off, off VHS tapes, but who cares because they're films that otherwise would be kind of lost. Um Anyway, I was watching a film. It was called The Man Who Haunted Himself, um, starring, starring, Roger, starring Roger Moore from 1970. So he's pre James Bond, Bond, Roger Moore. I won't. I mean, he, he, essentially, he, he um, there's two there's two uh, Roger Moores in the film. But but essentially, um, the, the scene is he's playing snooker, um, and the idea is the character is really good at snooker. Um, so he pots a red, he pots a pink, and he pots a red. But after potting the pink, he doesn't pause to allow his opponent to put the pink back on the table. So I'm sorry, Roger. That's a foul. Yeah, <laughs> it just is. You know, you All can't make you can't, yeah. you can't make your own rules. You know, anarchy lies that way. So, um, but anyway, like having nine points for the brown or so, uh, for the black or something yeah. like that. But you know, it all lead to anarchy, as you say. 
So the man who haunted himself, uh, talking pictures TV. I was also watching a thing on ITV. What was that the other day? Um, it was some police drama. I think it's called The Bay. Um, it's on, it's on at the moment. And there's a scene where someone's drunk in a pub and someone has to come and sort of collect them. And there's a, there's some sort of snooker on in the background on the telly, but it looks like they're streaming the qualifiers or something because it's, <laughs> honestly, it's, it doesn't look like TV snooker. It, it, it's a snooker table. Um, but it's very dark. I don't know whether they've had to sort of, block out the logos or something like that maybe that's it but it kind of almost looks like it's just like sort of i don't know china open qualifying or something anyway if well, anyone... here actually here's another one i came across last night uh, cultural uh, connections with, with snooker you know this have you watched the uh i i think it was on itv anyway the drama quiz about this oh yeah, yeah. That was on, who was, yeah, yeah right well john parrot's in it <laughs> So we were, wa- we were watching the first episode last night and they show actual footage of all the awards that Who won- Who Wants to Be a Millionaire won for like best quiz show or whatever. And of course, at these award ceremonies, they before they announce the winner, they kind of divide the screen into four quarters and show each of the nominees. So one of them must have been a question of sport because a very young looking John Parrott is sitting there, obviously having gone to represent question of sport. So he gets a cameo appearance in, in quiz. I, I did watch that. Michael Sheen is very good as Chris Terrence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, really, he really is. Anyway, um, we're now going to move on to uh, the main topic. So, yeah, puffery and lies. Um, mm. so when I started on the circuit, um, well, 20-odd years ago now, um, mm. you were told certain things that you basically, because you knew no better, you believed. For example, uh, for a long time, people would say that um, when we had all these 8 o'clock starts um, on the BBC People would say um, if the world, if the '85 World Final, they said the '85 World Final last session started like six o'clock. So on on that basis, it would have been two in the morning, you know, if it started at eight. For years, I just accepted that. It turned out it didn't. It was seven o'clock. Mm. Uh, so it, that wasn't true. Um, and little things like that have grown up over the years. And even I'll start because the two things are related. You often hear this two cushion escape if you snook it, um, coming off two cushions trying to clip the thin clip the red or whatever colour, um, back to bolt. People, it's kind of, you hear people say Cliff Thorburn uh, invented that. Um, now, is that really true? I don't think so. I think more like what's likely is potentially that shot may have uh, had its provenance in North America, potentially. And so obviously Cliff as a Canadian maybe was one of the first players to play it in a tournament. He wouldn't have invented it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, would, I wouldn't have thought. Same as Stephen Hendry. We often hear he invented splitting the pack from the blue. I mean, he can't have been the first person to do that, but he would maybe was one of the first to employ it early on in frames rather he than took te- it mainstream. You might say, mainstream. yeah, yeah. Ra- rather than teasing t- teasing out reds and, and so on. He just got into the pack early on. The point is, these things are kind of said and they're accepted, but are they really true? Um, I'll tell you like, one I, thing that I, I think he maybe did again, not quite invent, but. You used to very rarely see players taking on long blues to bulk pockets. I think he was the first to really do that with any regularity. You might have thought it would be someone like Jimmy Weiss, but no, I think Stephen Hendry was the first to really do that on a regular basis. That you would see again, you would see that as a routine shot. That if you were, if the blue was on its spot and the cue ball was three or four feet away, that you would actually attempt to pot the blue into a bulk pocket. I think that became routine largely on the back of Stephen Hendry doing it that will be my memory of it anyway well a listener James Buck has, has inadvertently started one of his own um right uh, James Buck I suppose if you overtook him on the motorway you'd be passing the book but anyway yeah. uh yeah. 
another one of those this time next week. Anyway, he let's said... Not read, let's not read any more of this email. Let's just say the book stops here. Sorry, had to do that. <laughs> Move on. So anyway, uh, James says, I wonder if Patsy... So this, yeah, he says, I wonder if Patsy Fagan gets annoyed about it being said that he won the Masters without a 50-break tag. I played in the World Seniors Qualifying School in Reading recently and had the privilege of playing on the table next to Patsy at one point. As I struggled away, all I could hear was Patsy Fagan 58 and Patsy Fagan 64 coming from the referee on the adjoining table. Well, James, of course, it wasn't Patsy. It was Perry Manns. Yeah. Uh, Patsy won the UK Championship. Perry Manns won the Masters uh, in 1979, I'm going to say. Uh, I think you're right, yeah. Um, and his highest break was 48. Now, but the thing about that is, I mean, he was just a very different player. He was, a, he was an out-of-that potter. He didn't play position. He wasn't, wasn't interested mm. in that. He was interested in potting, putting balls awkward, making things difficult. Um, so it was actually Perry Mans. Um, I'm, I'm not being like um, trying to be clever, trying to correct you, but he's not. Patsy's off the hook on that, on that, uh, on that score. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, from a similar sort of era, a little bit later, there were some extraordinary myths that spread for many years about um, players and their backgrounds leading into big successes. I mean, an obvious one is Joe Johnson when he won the World Championship in 1986. Now, one thing that was said about him was that he had never won a match at the Crucible before. Now, that was true. I think he'd only played there in 84 and 85. Dennis Taylor beat him heavily in one of those years, and it may have been Bill Werbenick beating the other year. But anyway, it was true that he hadn't won a match at the Crucible. But one thing that was said for a long time was that, actually, he had never won a match on television before he'd won the World Championship. And it was only some years later it occurred to me how unlikely that was. Now, I knew that the main, the biggest single uh, factor in him getting into the top 16 was getting to the final of the professional players tournament. That wasn't televised. So, OK, fair enough. But he had also been in the semi-finals of the Mercantile Credit Classic. Mm. And you kind of think, well, how could he have done that without playing any matches on television? Nowadays, of course, actually, you could reach a semi-final, say, in a home nations event without any of your matches being televised. But the Mercantile, which incidentally, there, there goes our weekly mention of it, mm. um, certainly at that time, there were 16 players in it, so there was only one table. So basically every match was televised, and he would have beaten, he beat Cliff Wilson and Warren King to get to the semis. Now surely it must have been on TV, he was then actually heavily beaten by Cliff Thorburn, who you just mentioned, in the semi-final. So that, that was one myth. The other myth, of course, was about Dennis Taylor, famously winner of the 1985 World Championship. But as you would say, Dave, he did win another Triple Crown title uh, <laughs> a couple of years later when he won the Masters, beating Alex Higgins. He just, he just didn't know it was because it hadn't been in for, for 15 <laughs> yeah. years. Indeed, yeah, yeah. You know, he would have made a big effort to win the UK if, if he'd yeah. known it was, it was yeah. going to be. But um, it was said at the time, and the remarkable thing about this is, of course, Dennis has such a bad record in the Masters, he's never won a match in it before. Now, that persisted for a really long time because... Um, there was a chap, Rob Nothman, who um, it was very well known on BBC Radio. I don't know if he's still doing anything on it, but he was the press officer and MC at the Masters in the late 90s and into the early 2000s. And there was a really comprehensive media guide produced one year, and we were sitting around waiting for play to start. I think it was on semi-finals day, and Rob took out this uh, you know, almanac, I suppose you would call it, of, of past Masters history, and he asked this question, and it was something along the lines of, who did Dennis Taylor beat in the first round in 1986? And there was almost like a sort of, mm. you know, sympathetic air. Oh, oh, no, Rob, no, you must be wrong about that, because everyone knows Dennis Taylor never won a match in the Masters. And, of course, we looked at it, and it turned out he had actually won a match the previous year, the year before he won it. <laughs> he'd beaten Doug Mountjoy in the first round. And, of course, we all ended up looking very silly then. 
particularly guys like Phil and Clive who've been around for such a long time and have been perpetuating this this myth when actually he'd won a match in the Masters the year before. So things like that, well, yeah, can, but, uh, yeah, can build up. But I think that's the thing. Like so many of these things you've heard from people you believe, you know, yeah. reputable, reputable people who who who've actually heard it. From, it gets it's like Chinese whispers; it gets repeated. Yeah. So if so, Clive's heard it from someone. If Clive tells you it, you're going to believe it. But he's just heard it from someone who's heard it from someone who's heard it from someone who initially mm. had made a mistake. The one that I wanted to mention, because this is, I've seen this written in newspaper articles. So the 1996 World Championship, Ronnie O'Sullivan played quite an ill-tempered match against Elaine Robidoux. Yeah. Uh, played a lot of shots left-handed, won easily, 10-2. Uh, There's a bit of stink after Robidoux complained uh, that he thought he was taking the mick out of him and so on and so on. Now, it's, at some point it, it was reported, and it must be years later, um, because it never happened, um, that Ronnie was going to be disciplined for this. Um, <laughs> but, mm. uh, to, but what they did was they sent him to play Rex Williams um, over three frames to prove he could play left-handed, and he won all three frames, so they said, OK, well, no problem. I mean, it's such a ridiculous story. First of all, he'd proven he could play left-handed in the match. He won the match 10-2. Um, he, had, he hadn't broken any rules, so why he would be disciplined, I'm not so sure. You can play right or left-handed or both. There's nothing written down to say you can't. But here's the other thing about this, and this is why it's provably not true. At the time, Rex Williams was actually leading a coup attempt to get to get rid of the WPBSA board. So why would the, the same board choose him as the person to get involved and, and you know help prove that Ronnie um, could play left-handed? But what I would say is, this has been repeated so many times now, if you if you asked Ronnie if it had happened, he'd probably say yes. Just because well, I, I think I think he told that story. Yeah, I think he well, told. And I, I'm with you. I mean, it definitely definitely did not happen. But he's heard it so many times, yeah. and it's so long ago now. He probably thinks he's just forgotten it. Yeah. But that it must have happened. But I, I'm nearly certain I've heard him actually tell that story. There you are. Absolutely. It could, it, it's it's not. It's one of these things that not only did it not happen, but for the reasons you pointed out, it simply couldn't have happened. Yeah. yeah. So, but but you do see that. I've seen that as offered up as. Um, sort of evidence, obviously, of how good Ronnie is. The fact he, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't. I mean, you don't. I don't think. I don't think his reputation is resting on that story, is it? I think there's, there are other things you can point to that he's done that maybe. Um, and speaking of which, another myth actually is regarding him is his maximum in '97, mm. um, which for years we were told was five minutes twenty seconds, and somebody actually went to the trouble of timing it from the first shot to the last. It turns out it's five minutes eight seconds. It was even quicker. Um, mm. It was just at the time. I think. The, I think. I don't know exactly why um, it, it, it was recorded as five minutes twenty, but it, was, it must have been just when they, from when they started counting, presumably from from when Mick Price went back to his seat, um, and maybe the cue ball was still running. I don't know. But anyway, twelve seconds were taken off it. Um, yeah. So it was well, even quick, quicker than we thought. Ronnie also uh, comes up in something that you know you and I, given our backgrounds, would would certainly have come across a lot over the years as uh, players being misquoted. Mm. And um, one of the most famous, arguably, the, well, no, actually, I was going to say arguably the most famous press conference at the Crucible, but of course that was the Alex Higgins one in 1990, the, the rambling speech he gave after uh, losing to Steve James. So maybe apart from that, perhaps the most famous press conference at the Crucible was the run, one that Ronnie gave after he beat Stephen Lee in the quarterfinals in 2002, and he decides to have a go at Stephen Hendry. Now he said something about, oh, I'm going to send him, uh, send. Yeah, he, he, he said, oh, if I beat him, I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, go back to your sad little life. 
Then he said something about how I'm going to send him back to Scotland. And somehow these two quotes became fused by the very next day. It became gospel truth that he had said, I'm going to send him back to his sad little life. Now, that wasn't too bad because it, it was basically the gist of what he said, I suppose. It was only putting a couple of things together. But the best example of, of this, of a myth building up around something that was said, and it was uh, Joe Swale. I think he was 12-8 down against John Paris. And he came back to beat him 13-12 in the second round and went on to reach the semi-finals. And afterwards, John Parrott, I mean, he was obviously absolutely gutted to lose a match in that way. But he spoke quite graciously. And he talked about how I think Joe had actually beaten him a few times in the previous few years. And he used the line, oh, Joe's been such a pain in the neck for me over the last couple of years. So one of the tabloid journalists <laughs> twisted that round. It appeared in the papers the next day. The championship has been overshadowed by backstage rows among the players. <laughs> with, with John Parrott describing Joe Swell as a pain in the neck. Um, you know, and, well, and actually, yeah. the, the funny thing is, I remember um, the next morning coming in and seeing that in the paper. And I showed it to Clive and he was disgusted that this had been written. And when that journalist showed up uh, later on in the morning, Clive actually took him to task over it, mm. over the fact he'd said it. But there are so many things like that that just... I mean, players get misquoted on what they've said. But more often than that, I think, you know, the excuse people always use, oh, I was quoted out of yeah. context. Well, you know, you can only really use that excuse if you then go on to explain what the context should have been. But in situations like that, there's, you know, a clear example of when someone was quoted out of context. That one kind of passed by. No one really remembers it very much. But there are bigger, exa- bigger examples of it, certainly over the years. Yeah, and I mean, I don't like that phrase. I was quite out of context, but sometimes yeah. they are. Sometimes they are, and things like that. They may. I mean, we can laugh about it now, but actually, the the danger of things like that is they create a sort of mistrust between the players and the media. Um, if if you've said something entirely innocent and it looks like you're having a go at someone, you're not there, therefore that disposed to come and do any more interviews. Sure. But, but I was going to ask you uh, one actually, because you are from the Emerald Isle. Um, mm-hmm. Ken Doherty, obviously '97 world champion, and I mean, listen, I, 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 was, I helped Ken write his autobiography, so yeah. I, I, I've been involved with this. But the story was, we always see, well, there's two stories. One is that the, the police, the central police station in Dublin didn't get any calls that night. Um, I think that's true. Yeah, it, sound, true. it sounds like it should be true. But the other one is that yeah. a quarter of a million people turned out for his bus ride through the streets of Dublin. Now, I've always thought about that. Um, and Ken, you know, it was a big deal that was winning that and beating Hendry. And Spook has always been popular in Ireland. But it strikes me, because I've been to Dublin, it's a big city. Mm. Surely a lot of those people, well, they're not just out anyway. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there might have been know, a quarter were... of a million people yeah. on the streets, but yeah, they were maybe going to Brown Thomas or something. Do we I know if they were there for him? I don't know. Well, put it this way, right? Th- that was a thing, my word. I mean, anyone listening to this who grew up in Ireland at that time, we loved a good open-top bus ride. Mm. I mean, we had so many of them. The only one I ever remember going to, actually, because I wasn't at that one for Ken. I think I was doing something else that day. When Stephen Roach won the Tour de France, he had an open-top bus ride uh, through the streets of Dublin the next day, and I, I definitely remember being there for that. But the biggest one ever was when we got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup in 1990. And it was actually going on at the same time as you were playing Cameroon in the quarterfinal the following night. There was this incredible parade, like real historic scenes, actually, on the streets of Dublin. Now, I don't think there were, it's ever been said there were a quarter of a million people turned out even for that. And you could not move in Dublin. I mean, it was just basically the centre of it was just full of people. So, no, I, I can pretty much confirm that. There's no way a quarter of a million people turned out on the streets of Dublin uh, for Ken Doherty. Maybe 
Ken had had so much to drink, he was just seen double. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> so. So only 125,000 then. A yeah. mere 125,000 people. <laughs> um, let's move on, actually, to yeah. the 2001 Masters, which... Um, Please do. Please do. Yeah, which, uh, of course, Fergal O'Brien was in the final, so we've had our American Tom mention. <laughs> now we've had our Fergal mention. Yeah. Okay, so now our work here is done. But, of course, he was beaten in the final by Paul Hunter. Now, the whole story about how, you know, he was well behind. He was 6-2 down at the end of the afternoon. And he said afterwards in the press conference, oh, yeah, we, you know, went back with my girlfriend and we reverted to plan B. All of that actually happened. But, like everything else, the story has grown legs over the years. And I remember it being claimed somewhere along the way that when Paul said that in the press conference, that there were a load of tabloid journalists sitting at the back of the room almost falling asleep. And it was said they were there little imagining they'd get a front page story out of a snooker tournament. Well, if they were little imagining <laughs> they were going to get a story, why would you spend your Sunday night? You know, well, well let, let's just look at it logically. I mean, yeah. Fergal, we love Fergal. Obviously, we talk yeah. about him all the time. Yeah. He, you know, he's not going to he's not going to get a load of tabloid hacks going down to a snooker tournament. You're not going to get anything yeah. of any tabloid interest out of him. And at the time, Paul wasn't really very well known at all. So the fact that they mm. met in the final, that, that would not attract the interest of anyone other than sports. No, no, absolutely. The only people who come to cover a snooker tournament are there to cover the snooker. Now, they might get a story, as they did in this case. Yeah. But the idea that, you know, tabloid journalists, you know, who don't go to cover the event, just turn up in the press room in the hope that something interesting is going to happen. Which, by the way, they won't get in the paper the next day anyway, because in those days, as we discussed, the finals never finished till about midnight anyway. And I remember Jazz 625 was was even delayed for the coverage that night. And that was never on until after midnight. The other thing, though, uh, when I heard that that, that myth being put forward, it was also said suddenly uh, these journalists came to life and started pushing people out of the way and climbing over tables and chairs to get in front of the room to talk to Paul about it. The press conference room at Wembley Conference Centre only went back about four rows. So, I mean, you you could be sitting in the back row and you could practically reach out and shake hands with the player. So why would you have to push past people and shove your way to the front of the room? So well, that, yeah, the thing about that, that plan B thing, the, mm. reason, the reason it was such a good story is because it was so innocently said. Paul, yeah, Paul, yeah. Paul didn't say it thinking, oh, I'll get on the front page. He just said it like as, a, as an aside. He had no thought at all that it, that, that will become a story. Um, that's, yeah. why, that's why it was kind of, that's what I think why people liked him for that, because he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a contrived thing at all. Yeah, it was so unfiltered. You know, I mean, it was just, yeah, he, he wasn't looking for publicity at all. And I think also just, you know, Paul, he had that kind of angelic look about him. You know, yeah. I'm not saying he was an angel or anything, but he, he almost looked like a choir boy. You know, very good looking lad. And he just looked so young. And I think that added to it all uh, as well. So, yes, I mean, the basics of that story were true, but it's grown legs over the years. As we said, that's 20 years ago now. It's only been three years since Mark Williams did the naked press conference. Can you imagine the legs that story's going to grow over the years? Well, let's hope he's only legs. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, and, and thankfully, the one thing I'll say about that is he did arrive in a towel. Thankfully, um, yeah, we had one that had to be, I imagine, thrown away afterwards. I'll tell you one thing that did happen. Actually, I can't remember the guy's name. You'll probably remember it, but there was a guy there, a Welsh guy. I think it was from BBC Radio Wales. Um, I can't remember his oh, name. Garrett. That's it. Yes, that's him. He was uh, he was uh, sitting next to Mark, I and mean, basically that was the situation. Mark was in one seat at the top table. Gareth was sitting in the other table. Now Mark had taken the towel off at this stage, yeah. 
And he managed to keep a straight face by making some sort of carry-on style joke in his opening question, something about, well, let's look at the bare facts of the match. I mean, it was, it was a master class in keeping a straight face. Well, dare I, dare I say he, 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 had Here we go. View, he had full view of the triple crown that night. Anyway, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a rather distasteful note. Um, uh, uh, do you have any more? Or? No, that's about it, really. I mean, I'm sure I'll think of more now over the next week. We might come back to it. Well, we, what, what, we haven't, what we haven't covered are most of the ones we've started, of course. Yeah, well, indeed. Probably set off a few of them today. Yeah. There are myths um, about what used to happen. Back in back in the eighties, I mean, they've become so mythologized. You know, it's like people talking about you know Woodstock and what they got up to at Woodstock, and then you realise they weren't born until nineteen seventy four or whatever. But um, there are stories uh, from the eighties and what used to go on then. I mean, the game's profile and its status in Britain was at its peak in those days. That is absolutely true. But people say things like, oh, you know, during the BBC events, they used to come on ten o'clock in the morning and they'd be on live all the way through to midnight and beyond. It's simply not true at all, is it? Well, um, well, I, I've said this before. I think I quoted James Graham, the playwright, who said that so often our memories are actually memories of memories. So when you think of a childhood holiday, you don't remember it raining. You just remember it being sunny. You know, you yes. remember, remember it's very much sort of rose tinted. Um, and people even remember Christmases where it's been a white Christmas, even mm-hmm. though... I don't remember, ever remember any white Christmases. Um, so I'll you rem- actually remember from, it the way you want to remember it, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and also from that era, and I mean, you'll back this up. The, 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 like, people used to show at the end of the World Championship every year, the BBC would make a sort of musical piece where they would show moments from the championship, and there'd be kind of, some of them would be sort of funny moments. And I mean, basically, all it would involve would be someone maybe raising their eyebrows to the camera or whatever. Now, on the back of that, I think a myth- mythology is built up that in the 80s, they were all cracking jokes every couple of minutes. And, and also that this myth that there was this wonderful camaraderie between all the players and they were best of friends. And, you know, they'd go and have a drink together afterwards and, you know, sing in the bar together with their arms around each other's shoulders, whatever the result. Actually, a lot of the players in those days really had it in for each other. So they, they, these are the things that build up uh, around that era. I'm fairly sure people will, will email in with, with some other ones over the next well, few, few of the next week or so. One ironic one, actually, that you do hear um, when people talk about Barry Hearn is that he's the man who made snooker big. Yeah. Now, it's ironic because he's actually the man who has saved snooker and, mm. has, and has actually reinvigorated it. But in the early 80s, I mean, Barry was ahead of the curve because he owned snooker clubs before the boom. So he was well-placed to then benefit from that boom. Obviously, meeting Steve Davis was a massive thing as well. Um, he was what, certainly one of the first people to recognise the commercial possibilities of snooker. But what made Snooker big was that it was on the BBC. <laughs> That's what made yeah. Snooker big. And, you know, they gave it sufficient coverage that, that it, it had that exposure. And he very astutely and very shrewdly kind of rode on the back of that. But he didn't put Snooker on telly. Um, but, of course, the irony is, you, you know, he has now, in this era, done wonders for it. And when people talk about that era, they say, oh, you know, it got put on television and became a big success. Up until then, it had only been a pub game. <laughs> now, this is this is another one of these huge myths about it. I mean, the only way you can have a snooker table in a pub, and it does exist in some places, is when you have basically a separate room out the back, which is massive, and you have tables in it. The idea you could have a snooker table in the middle of a pub, it's so big, and you need queuing room around it. It's just it wouldn't make any at all. It wouldn't make any commercial sense for the pub. You wouldn't that space yeah. for, for tables and so on and, mm-hmm. and, and people to drink. We were talking about this last year in Southport because the, a rumour went round, again it turned out to be a myth, 
that there was a table in in one of the pubs in Southport, and some someone went down to investigate, and there wasn't. So <laughs> maybe, maybe they must have taken that was it out. They must have taken it out, or maybe it was never there. But yeah, it's it's very rare indeed. Anyway, well, let us know um, any myths, um, maybe that you want that you you're not sure about, or you want correcting, or or that you've heard, um, including any that we <laughs> we've started ourselves. You can email us snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Never. Sorry, go on. I was going to give it again. Snookerscenepodcast.com. Yeah, never mind any of that. I've remembered. I knew there was another car company had sponsored a tournament. Uh, Peoples used to sponsor the Scottish Professional Championship back in the 1980s. Wow. And they say and they say we're niche on this podcast. Well, wait till we start running adverts. Um, I I must warn people. I must warn people uh, that we may in the future have adverts. We've been approached by someone. and listen, we're complete sellouts. I mean, if you want, if you want to send me free products, I'll, I'll read anything out. Um, uh, but this is biscuits, whatever you want. I'll, uh, I'll. Um, well, they don't need to bother now because you've just given them a mention. Well, here's the thing about uh, <laughs> talk about getting sidetracked. My my nan years ago, she wrote to McVitie's because she she was convinced that the biscuits were getting smaller, right? And she wrote she wrote this stiff letter, um, basically complaining, and they sort of sent. What was a little bit of a stonewalling letter back? They they didn't admit it, they didn't deny it. Um, but she effectively, and here it is, the payoff. She effectively yeah. was was accusing them of taking the biscuit. Yeah, she yeah. was. Um, that's, that's a true story. Good. That's a true yeah. story. But uh, but I've always regarded the McVitie's as the biscuit you can trust, and I will say that for money. Um, no, in all, in all seriousness, we, there may be a couple of adverts in the future, but that that is, is the only um, change, and you can scroll through them. I mean, I, I don't. Obviously, I don't recommend that because we might get some money for it, but uh, you, you can do that. And there's no, you know, uh, I, well, I, I just love the fact that your gran, you know, made such a big issue out of something that, let's face it, is, is, is pretty trivial. And here you na- are now, all these uh, years later, running a multimedia campaign against the Triple Crown concept. Let me just say that, OK, <laughs> I now am the only person who doesn't mention it. People emailing about it. You mention it. I do not. I said I wouldn't no, mention it. And yeah, I don't. But- but you've said that about six times. And it no, keeps no. Coming up. I mentioned it in regards to Mark Williams in a rather off-colour way. Um, but mm. in terms of the concept, I've made my points about it well-known. Other people have made their points about it well-known. I'm happy to move on. It's not me that's bringing it up. That's all mm. I'll say about that. Well, you see, the thing is, if you've got these causes, you shouldn't move on from... I mean, I'm never going to let go of my campaign to rid us of the Curse of the Crucible. Concept. Well, you don't have, to, don't have to worry about that this year. Now then, I'll, let's yeah, just squeeze, let's squeeze in one last email. This is from uh, Sat Jinder here. I really enjoy the best snooker podcast out there. I think he means this one. He says, one question I've always wanted to ask, how do the professionals work out the angles to get out of snookers? Is there one single method that players use, or do players use different methods? Well, I think, like any shot that you play, it comes from experience. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it, it is actually, you know, you see, I mean, I mentioned the two-cushion escape. That That is real skill, to be able to pull that shot off. You know, Obviously, incredible, club, actually, yeah. Yeah, I mean, club tables are, can be pretty bad, I know, but to be able to just, even when they miss it slightly on the first one, you know, to be even that accurate, um, it is something you learn as you go on. It's not the first thing you think about when you're playing. You think about, you know, potting, really, and break building. But it's so important, and it seems to me now players are better than ever at getting out of snookers. They just, and laying them yes. as well. I mean, Trump is a genius at, at all of that stuff. Um well, it's so, because they're playing so much. Yeah. Like, you know, they're not just practicing. They're involved in so much actual match play 
that you know that's the way to do. It. I often wonder about that. Actually, you can teach players how to play position, how to pot. Obviously, the technical side of the game. I think tactics and safety can really only come from playing matches. That you only build it up over the years. But I mean that two cushion escape you're talking about. It is so difficult to play. You put the average club player in that position. Give them a thousand goes at it, and honestly, they might they might yeah. get it right once. And if yeah. they do, it'll only be through luck. It won't be because they've played it particularly well. I, I love the question, actually. It reminds me of um, the 2015 World Championship final, asking how the players work out the angles. There was a Chinese woman who turned up to the Crucible to cover the 2015 World Championship. After the final, she came out with two extraordinary questions. Sean Murphy has just lost in one of the best world finals, certainly in terms of quality, there's ever been. She asked him, how would you feel if you'd been playing a woman tonight? <laughs> incredible thing to come out with. But then Stuart Bingham, I mean, you know, like nobody has ever been happier to win the World Championship. Nobody's ever been happier about anything than Stuart yeah. was that night. Yeah. And she asked him this question. So you are very good at playing these shots. Is it some formula you have to do with the geometry of the balls? And <laughs> really technical. I mean, our friend, the BBC science correspondent, probably mm. wouldn't even go this much in depth into yeah. a question. And Stuart just sensibly said, I couldn't even begin to answer that. So it has been brought up before. Yes. No, I mean it's it it's it's like any um anything. It comes from practice. Um, yeah. But so, some players, you know, just seem never like Mark Selby. You know, if you if you win a frame against Mark Selby having needed snookers, you've done well, I think. Um, and that, oh, that's yeah. that's increasingly true of Trump as well. Um, although I always think the longer a frame goes on where players are after snookers, the more likelihood someone's going to go in off or some some misfortune will befall them. Um. Anyway, I hope that answers your question. A lot of other emails that we haven't had time to get to. Well, we've yeah. got to go back because I, I can't leave this out. I had this written down to, yeah. to mention uh, the snooker myths. I don't want to leave this one out because it was one that was started uh, entirely deliberately, spitefully and maliciously. Okay. And, um, <laughs> I, I, these are all words that we enjoy here. Yes. Well, funny you should say that because I was about to say, when I've used those words, you know it must have started in the press room, which yeah. is where it started. I think it was about 1996. Now, people might find this hard to believe now, but it was actually big news back then within snooker when someone reached 100 career century breaks. And I think it was Willie Thorne who did it at the International Open. And uh, he was only something like the eighth player ever to do it. Now, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was a journalist in the press room who wasn't liked at the time. So (laughs) that that narrows it down. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, this guy was really, really disliked. I think he'd even been tied up. Uh, to one of the uh-huh, um, yeah. pillars in the Crucible press room, right, so you know who it is now. Yeah. So the other journalists agreed, right, he's really annoying us this week. We're really going to drop a minute here. So Geet Sethi, who was uh, one of the Indian journalists, uh, and of course a very good player himself and a former World Billiards champion, was brought in on the joke. And I think he was the only guy who hadn't fallen out, because Geet's such a nice guy, he hadn't fallen out with this particular journalist. So the other said to him, look, at some point he's going to ask you, who are the other seven players to have made 100 centuries? And they were all really big names. So Geet had been told, he'd been briefed to say, with a straight face, which he was very good at, to say that the other players were, say, Stephen Hendry, Steve Davis, etc., etc., and Barry West. <laughs> so, so when inevitably the question was asked of Geet, he said, oh, yeah, the other players were such and such. And, uh, yeah, and Barry West was one of them. And this guy was doing reports for loads of different radio stations, all of which con- contained the claim. But Barry West had, uh, was one of these uh, legendary players who had made the 100 centuries. He probably still believes it today, because I don't think anyone ever actually told him uh, what the truth of the matter was. So that was a whole different class of snooker myth, because it was done quite deliberately, and as I said, with, with a bit of what we might generously describe as 
good-humoured malice. <laughs> incidentally, Barry West... The best form of malice, I always find. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and incidentally, Barry West's actual total of career centuries was five. Well, what that proves is you can't trust anyone. But you know yeah. you, can, you know you can trust. That's right, McVitie's biscuits. Anyway, no, sorry. I, 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 I uh, thought you were going to say us. That definitely would have been a myth. No, no, no. I, I, I'd like to. I'd like to. Um, I mean, my nan's passed away now, but I'd like. I'd like to get my hands on that letter to see what they actually said because I know they. They didn't deny it. That's all I'll say. They didn't mm-hmm. deny it straight out. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that is it from uh, this edition. Uh, as I say, in, in future, I think we're going to try and uh, go through. There's a lot of emails. What I would say about the emails is it's always great to get them. Um, I would say um, this sounds like I'm having a go at people. I'm not. The shorter the better. I think direct questions are good. I had I've had a couple about maximums, but but this is. I think this is episode number 142. It would make sense to do oh, a spe- yeah. special on maximums when we get to 147, which will be in a few weeks' time. Um, a lot of other topics have come up as well. Keep them coming. Let us know what you think of the shootout. Obviously, in a different, um, completely different setup to what we're used to. No crowd. Um, and then we, we go on and on. Championship League, Welsh Open. Of course, he's not in Milton Keynes. It's actually in Wales, at the Celtic Manor in Newport, which is, mm. I think he's, everyone's quite happy about, I think. Uh, and then so on and so on. We've got the Players' Championship. That's just February alone. And then very soon, it's only two months for the World Championship, amazingly. Um, and, yeah, I guess the question there is, can Joe Trump keep his incredible run going in the biggest tournament of them all? We will see. Uh, unless you've got anything else to say, I think that's that's it. Well, just just to, just to say, we are definitely coming back to, because we didn't have time to go through them today, those emails people sent in with suggestions for a signature tune for us. I think we have to revisit that in a future episode. Well... Yes, there's, I mean, I'll just very quickly. Um, let me see if I can find. Uh, bear with us here. <laughs> see, this is a, an advert now would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah. So, for example, James James Cook, for example, uh, you know, came up with. I mean, this, this sounds like actually uh, that time Chris Downer put them on the on the YouTube. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. He's got he's got Coldplay, Yellow, uh, mm. Green, Green Aggressive Home, Tom Jones, Brown Eyed Girl, Van Morrison, Blue Monday, New Order, Lily the Pink Scaffold. Um, he, was, he actually says that was number one the day he was born. Uh, and back in black ACDC. So there's a, there's a sort of, uh, if you had a sort of mixtape of that, that might be. The, uh, my feeling on a theme tune is it sounds like a lot of effort. Um, and also you have to pay, pay royalties to people. Oh yeah, look, it's, it's an entirely theoretical conversation. To be honest, right, I know this, sound, this is going to sound like the least original suggestion of the year, but if we were going to have a sig tune, I'd just put on Snooker Loopy. I think, you know, it has to be, hasn't it? Yeah, or maybe, yeah, or that might be a bit mainstream. Maybe we could have like an old, old ITV theme tune from the 80s or something. Oh, anyway, actually, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll go with that, yeah. We're just sort of yakking now, so um, we will bring this to an end. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. And by the way, if you do listen on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, and if you've got this far, you must do, frankly, um, if you can review us, that, that means other people get to find the podcast more easily. Because so many people have said to me, and this has been going, this blog has been going five years now, maybe even six. Um, so many people have said they've only discovered it in the last year during lockdown. So um, there's all the back episodes to listen to, but we have a lot, a lot of new listeners. But if you if you can help other snooker fans find it, we'd be very grateful. But that is it. So as we always say, i.e. we're saying for the third time, thanks for listening and goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>